When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi there and welcome again to the Explaining History podcast and today I want to talk uh, about uh, the founding of the League of Nations and I think this is probably going to take us over quite a few uh, podcasts as it is one of the products of the Paris Peace Conference uh, in 1919. The League of Nations was one of Woodrow Wilson's uh, projects at the Paris Peace Conference uh, but it wasn't the first time that an international organisation, not only to manage world affairs, but to outlaw war, had been mooted. For example, at the end of the Napoleonic Wars, the Russian Tsar Alexander I um, saw a kind of a, a, a unity of Christendom of uh, Orthodox, Catholic and Protestant uh, countries uniting against the uh, despotism and barbarism of uh, revolutionary uh, forces that had been uh, unleashed by Napoleon, in, in his view, obviously, uh, and um, thought that there were, could be some uh, almost slightly, slightly mystical uh, union of nations and sort of a concert of, of nations. More realistically, I mean, the likes of uh, Lord uh, Castlereagh and Prince Metternich rather scoffed at uh, this when, when they heard it, but more realistically, in the 19th century, various uh, attempts from the uh, Vienna Congress um, through to the Bismarckian system to create a kind of a concert of Europe, uh, to create um, a, a system of regulating world affairs, um, preventing wars between great powers and uh, deciding upon the distribution of uh, empires and uh, colonies. Um, th- this, uh, in Wilson's eyes, uh, was not a stable system, not a system that um, led to world peace, but inevitably due to secret treaties and rivalries, particularly imperial rivalries, uh, led to war. Now, as I've often said in this podcast many times over, 
that the the view that we have of Woodrow Wilson, well, the naive view that's often put about that um, he looked upon this uh, uh, sinister interplay of European states, which periodically, you know, it could be described as that, um, as being something that needed to be swept away into history's dustbin and replaced by uh, an egalitarian, fair, legalistic, and most importantly, pluralistic system where um, poor nations and rich nations alike had a a democratic voice at a, a world forum. That's not quite what Wilson had in mind. Uh, Wilson did object to secret treaties. Wilson uh, did um, frown upon uh, European colonies. But he disliked colonialisation, colonialism, because it was a means by which uh, the British and the French and other powers could put around, put tariff barriers around large parts of the world and impede American trade. So the new world that Wilson was wanting to create was really going to be a, a level playing playing field, but it wasn't going to be a level playing field for everybody else. It was going to suit rising American economic, military and political power. And it was going to be designed with America in mind. So on January the 25th at the Paris Peace Conference, it was formally proved that uh, a commission under the League of Nations would be uh, established. Um, the American delegation even proposed making an animated film about this. They proposed um, showing the uh, old system of European alliances uh, and secret treaties and empires being swept away and a new world being built upon the ashes of the old, a new new order. And they thought that this would hopefully be wildly commercially successful. Now, the problem for us in studying the League of Nations is that we live on the other side of appeasement. We live on the other side of the failure of the League of Nations. We know what happened. We live on the other side of Hitler and the Holocaust, and we have uh, lived through the various successes and failings of the United Nations. We are on the the other side of a historical watershed, really, which is the the Second World War. So we have a a view now of the League of Nations, one of failure uh, and uh, one of naivety. But people in 1919 didn't have that perspective, or at least not all of them did. So we need to kind of uh, rid ourselves of our uh, preconceptions about the League of Nations if we want to actually go back and try to understand the perspectives of um, the uh, the planners of the League. The system of international relations had been changed forever by the realities of the First World War. Uh, War itself, as a device of state, had changed from the 18th to the 19th centuries. Uh, In the the 18th century, um, war was a far more limited affair. Wars did not uh, consume large chunks of the the nation's uh, manpower and resources, or the majority of the nation's manpower and resources. And wars could be uh, brought to uh, an end when they were more costly or far too costly for one of the uh, participants. Um, the, the the wars between uh, Britain and France throughout the 18th century are examples of this. In the 19th century, the development of uh, unified nation-states in Europe 
the power of nationalism and the advent of new technology make wars um, far more bloody affairs. You only need to look at the uh, Austro-Prussian War or the Franco-Prussian War for evidence of that. And obviously the, the First World War, which is a war of national survival for nearly all of the participants, and a, uh, a, a total war uh, and a global one, uh, means that now war is not seen as... Um, a tool of statecraft is seen as the uh, most frightening and terrifying force um, that uh, he, uh, uh, states between them can unleash. And if you add in the influenza epidemic that swept across Europe afterwards, uh, the consequences of war are simply too great. The development of air power and the understanding at the end of the First World War that the next war if it came about, would be fought from the air and that it could not be kept in the battlefield and it would be fought on the home front and cities would be wiped from the maps. This meant that uh, ending war, if possible, was a uh, a goal which should certainly be striven towards. And the level of support that is uh, there for the League of Nations uh, in European countries and um, amongst the populations of some European countries. If you look at Great Britain, there's a huge amount of support for it. Um, it tells you another interesting story, that it wasn't simply statesmen that were emotionally and passionately connected to the League of Nations. It was millions and millions of anonymous men and women uh, who saw the League of Nations as the best avenue for avoiding a future conflict. It was not lost on large numbers of uh, British people, uh, French people and other uh, Europeans that the uh, business of the Paris Peace Conference was largely unresolved and that uh, Germany and other parties in the conference had gone away with um, a great deal of uh, discontent and anger and bubbling forces of nationalism were there ready for a rematch. In David Reynolds' The Long Shadow and Richard Overy's The Morbid Age, this sense of pessimism, fear and the sense that uh, civilization may be moving towards its, its final moment uh, hang like dark clouds over the kind of British collective consciousness and the uh, desperation to avoid the trenches of the First World War uh, again is um, a real, a real significant uh, part in shaping British public life. Margaret Macmillan, in her book *Peacemakers*, uh, makes the point that um, the growth in participatory democracy in the late nineteenth and early twentieth centuries, and the mixture of um, democracy and nationalism as, as mass participatory political um, movements. Um, th it was assumed that these things would aid the League of Nations. She wrote, she writes, um, the spread of democracy, the growth of nationalism, the web of railway lines and telegraphs, the busy journalists and rotary presses churning out mass circulation newspapers. All this has summoned up a creature that governments did not much like, but which they dared not ignore. At Paris, it was assumed that negotiations would be conducted under public scrutiny. For idealists, this was a good thing. The people would bring a much-needed common sense to international relations. They did not want war or expensive arms races. 
this faith had not been shaken by the fact that many Europeans seemed enthusiastic about war in the decades before 1914 and positively passionate in 1914 itself, and there were many idealists in Europe and indeed throughout the world. The prosperity and progress of the 19th century encouraged the belief that the world was becoming more civilised. A growing middle class provided a natural constituency for a peace movement preaching the virtues of compulsory arbitration of disputes, international courts, disarmament, perhaps even pledges to abstain from violence as ways to prevent wars. The opponents of war took as models their own societies, especially those in Western Europe, where governments had become more responsive to the will of the citizens, where public police forces had replaced private guards and where the rule of law was widely accepted. Surely it was possible to imagine a similar society of nations providing collective security for its members. So that was the, the kind of part of the uh, intellectual foundation uh, of the League of Nations that the developments that had been seen in um, the Western world, particularly you know, the, the advance of what you would think of as, as modernity um, in most countries where there had been industrial revolutions, the development of mass democracy, um, an efficient um, bureaucracy in the state, what you see in those countries is a decline in violence. People are, um, you know, life isn't perfect, but the incidences of civil wars, banditry, and people killing each other in large numbers dramatically decreases, and therefore, surely this is now possible as we uh, start to develop into what you would think of as a, as a global society. Um, sadly not, it would appear. The um, conference was, um, the, the League of Nations Commission, I beg your pardon, was um, chaired by Wilson at his insistence, and the um, League of Nations is the, the, the centerpiece of all his ambitions at the conference. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. 
difference. Um, he thought that the, the quicker you can bring it into being, uh, the more quickly any problem uh, of arbitration or the threat of violence can be resolved. And therefore, whatever is left over at the end of the Paris Peace Conference will simply go through the arbitration processes at the League of Nations. And the League of Nations will almost be like an, an ongoing peace conference in its own right. And Wilson um, thought that the possibilities of making a peace for everybody that was going to be lasting and was going to resolve all issues and be seen as fair all around was going to be virtually impossible at Paris anyway, and therefore you would need a league in order to deal with issues of uh, German colonies and mandates, um, how the various constituent parts of the Ottoman Empire would now be run, and that the, the League would act as a, a trustee for people who, in the kind of the um, elitist and paternalist views of the big three at the conference, weren't yet, in inverted commas, ready to rule themselves. Margaret Macmillan also makes an important distinction uh, between the American view of the uh, benefactor Wilson coming to Europe to shine the light of democracy and reason and uh, the, the European the assumption that Europeans were incapable of this she says the picture sometimes painted of, painted of Wilson sailing across the Atlantic bearing the gift of the League of Nations from the new world to the old is compelling but alas false many Europeans had long wanted a better way of managing international relations the war they had just survived made sense only if it produced a better world and, end, and an end to war. That is what their own governments had promised in the dark days, and that is what they had. Uh, that is what had kept them going. In 1919, as Europeans contemplated those catastrophic years, with scarcely imaginable outpouring of blood, as they realised that European society had been horribly damaged, perhaps fatally, the League struck many, and not only liberals and left-wingers, as their last chance. Harold Nicholson, who was a member of the uh, British delegation, British Treasury official at the time, spoke for many of his generation when he said, We were journeying to Paris not merely to liquidate the war, but to found a new order in Europe. We were preparing not peace only, but eternal peace. There was about us the halo of some divine mission. We must be alert, stern, righteous and ascetic for we were bent on doing great, permanent and noble things. Lloyd George was more than happy to support um, Woodrow Wilson. He agreed that with Wilson that the first order of business should be the League of Nations, and this wasn't simply the fact that Lloyd George was hoping to keep the Americans happy in order to extract imperial concessions from the conference, but he did have... Um, part of the liberal tradition um, of opposition to the war and opposition to war and militarism in general, still within within him. But he also knew how deeply the war had affected the British national psyche and how traumatised the British were had been by the war. And any move towards preventing future conflict in um, Lloyd George's eyes would be electorally popular. And therefore, Lloyd George also knew that to come back from the Paris Peace Conference empty-handed, without a League of Nations, 
without any uh, insurance to the British people that they weren't going to be dragged into another European war and uh, without any institution that could arbitrate between rival powers and uh, calm uh, tensions would have been uh, political suicide for him. The mood is different in France. Um, there was pessimism about the possibility of international cooperation to prevent war. And as far as Clemenceau is concerned, dealing with Germany is the big issue. Um, dealing with reparations and also with a permanent security arrangement for France, which Clemenceau later sees as a, an Atlantic League between America, Britain and France. Um, that's the uh, the the future for France as Clemenceau sees it. Clemenceau isn't necessarily hostile to the League of Nations, but ambivalent. He sees it as unworkable and unrealistic, and sees it also as largely toothless. He thinks that uh, international law, and particularly the territorial integrity of France, cannot be uh, enforced with goodwill, and it needs um, a, a military force behind it, which uh, all proponents of the League are, are not presenting, or would be wildly unrealistic anyway. He was quoted as saying, I like the League, but I do not believe in it. And this reflects the uh, different historical conditions that have affected France. France has been invaded in 1870 and in 1914, and from 1914 to 1918, um, long uh, struggles have been waged upon French soil. Much of the fighting in the First World War is done on the Western Front in France, and France is the, the country that has borne most of the brunt uh, of Europe's uh, Europe's fighting. So a focus on uh, defending against Germany is far more significant and utmost in the minds of Clemenceau and other um, French diplomats and leaders than it is for um, other states, particularly Britain and America. Also, Clemenceau had eyes on territories in the old Ottoman Empire, particularly Syria and Palestine, and thought that uh, France should be rewarded with colonial territories after the war for the uh, troubles she'd been put to during it. And it seemed unlikely to him to begin with that the League of Nations would be a device by which um, imperial power, or the imperial power of France could be extended. In point of fact, the mandate system allows uh, Britain and France to gorge themselves on new colonies. So it works out uh, quite well for imperialists um, at the end of the day. When Clemenceau does engage with the League of Nations um, discussions, um, he really believes that unless the League of Nations has teeth, it is pointless and that the League of Nations should have um, the power to stop aggressors militarily. And if this is feasible, then this does present a realistic option for um, the defence of France, which is one of Clemenceau's uh, chief goals. Um, the British and the Americans uh, think that institutions and international law and tribunals and arbitration would be the, uh, uh, the most likely approach um, to maintain a lasting international peace. Their concern is the cost of an international peacekeeping or an international um, uh, military force. 
and also the threat that that might present to their own ambitions if necessary. The uh, voice of pacifism that was um, developing and um, increasingly powerful in the uh, towards the end of the First World War um, demanded disarmament. This would be the way in which the League of Nations would prevent future conflict, um, general disarmament, and a promise by members to abstain from war. And the question then emerged, that if the League had the power to do these kinds of things, would it itself emerge eventually as some kind of supranational legal body or a state in its own right? Would it be like the... Uh, Congress system, a concert of Europe, a concert of the world, um, where um, heads of state would uh, gather largely in secret to discuss uh, world affairs and kind of negotiate with one another. Um, Would it be a a permanent body? Would it be summoned in a crisis? Um, And who would be allowed to join? Could uh, dictatorships join? Could the Bolsheviks join? Uh, would only democratic societies be able to join? Would um, societies considered to be uh, backward and primitive be able to join? What would be the membership rules and procedures? Would there be a secretariat? Wilson had been very quiet during the war on specifics, knowing full well that only once the war had ended and the conditions on the ground were uh, clear that he could make any sort of prediction as to what would be possible. The power of the League, as Wilson saw it, would come from humanity itself. If it represented the will of all peoples uh, everywhere, then it was it would be impossible to uh, countermand or to ignore. The war had clearly shown that the, the ordinary peoples of the world needed some kind of organisation to protect their interests. Interesting, it is interesting what Wilson was saying about the inability of governments to achieve that any longer under condition under conditions of, of total war. And that um, what he referred to as the councils of plain men, the, the councils as in the thoughts and opinions and judgments of plain men, um, were have become on all hands, more simple and straightforward and more unified than the council of sophisticated men of affairs who still retain the impression that they are playing a game of power and playing for high stakes. So what Wilson was saying there was the the gradual democratisation of much of the world in the late 19th, 20th century had presented the, uh, the great statesmen who had led to these catastrophes with uh, an immense challenge uh, and that the uh, plain, the councils of plain men would sweep all before them and were far more significant and important. Um, there was, perhaps in what Wilson was saying, some of the utopianism of the progressive era um, that had largely, uh, largely kind of died out by about 1919, um, in no small part as a result of the war, um, still present uh, and part of the kind of utopian thoughts of of modernists um, before the war um, and during and to some extent afterwards were there in the uh, founding moments of the League of Nations. Unfortunately, 
Whilst throughout the 20th century, these ideas and notions of um, democratisation and a greater uh, role of uh, the uh, the public, the global public, if you will, in world affairs, has been has been there. There has been um, a very uneven path towards this and the League of Nations as we know um, part one of the things that distinguishes it in um, popular memory is this journey from utopianism to the bitter reality of the Second World War. Anyway we'll talk more about that in the coming weeks and I hope um, this has been an interesting podcast for you. Um, Come and check us out on the Explaining History Facebook page come say hi and um, It'd be great to have a chat, and uh, I'll look forward to speaking to you soon. All the best. Bye-bye. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.